Hi, and welcome back to Better Health Now. I'm your host, Rob Brown. If this is your first time listening, then you've jumped into part three of my series on sleep. And while I won't say you can't listen to number three first, it would help a lot if you went back and listened to numbers one and two, because I kind of lay the groundwork for the stuff we're going to talk about today. But if you don't want to do that, that's not a problem. We'll get you up to speed. Uh, so if you're a new listener, jump in. If you're an old listener, I hope you've uh, been following along and subscribing, passing this information along to some other folks. All right, here it is, the big topic. I kind of teased you with it the first time. Now we're done with the teasing. We're going to get into the facts. Or maybe I should say we're going to get into the proposal. You see, new facts and new information a lot of times come to us as a new theory or a new idea. They get tested. They generate some information. We test that information. It causes us to do more testing. It generates more information. That's the way the whole process runs. Right now, it's a really exciting time because we have a new proposal, a new idea that's in some testing that really looks like it's going to be an exciting thing. What is that the exciting thing we're talking about? Well, obviously, it's going to have to do with sleep. Here it is. Our brains need a system to take out the trash. Now, we have that system for taking out the trash. The newest researchers want to call it the glymphatic system. Lymphatic with a G in front of it. It's a brand new concept out there, folks. So we're going to really have to dig into this one. It's going to get a little technical, but stay with me. and I think we can do a pretty decent job. This is really a hot topic. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to a TED talk about it. Uh, I'm not trying to steal their thunder because they got way more in depth. I'm going to try to make it a little bit more so that we can understand this. Give you just a little bit of background. I try to do that every time. In our brain, we have brain cells. We call them neurons. We also have some other cells that are called glial cells, G-L-I-A-L, glial cells. Now there's actually more of these glial cells than there are of the nerve or neurons. We also have some tiny glial cells, really small ones that are called, you guessed it, microglia. Now these microglia cells are the cleanup cells for the brain. There's a little bit of foreshadowing going on here. Can you see it? Do you feel where it's going? So there are more support cells, those glia cells, than the neurons. The way the brain works and the way nerves work is nerves send messages. I think everybody knew that one. The way they do this is a process of electric and chemistry. It's an electrochemical process. I'm going to put it way too simple, but I think it'll work. An electric charge moves along a nerve. When that charge gets to the end of the nerve, that electrical charge causes a release of chemicals from the end of the nerve. This chemical's released, goes across a gap between that nerve and the next nerve, and it's picked up and received by another nerve, receptors on the second nerve. This reception of those chemicals on the second nerve causes an electrical message which continues along the nerve, and that's the way messages are passed. Now, there's really nobody that's going to argue, except people who want to be technical, that that's the way messages are passed along. We can stimulate nerves with electricity. We use TENS all the time. We use electrical muscle stimulation. We can test nerves using electricity. Everyone agrees with this. This is the way things work. Let me try to, to get you thinking about this in just one other way, because I think when we, we jump into the final part of this, it'll make a little bit more sense for you. Suppose you had a relative who lives eight hours away, and I have one. So you decide that I've got two kids, he's got two kids. We want our, the cousins, my nephew and niece, to meet their cousins. And they, we want them to spend a weekend together. So I, being a very... Uh, energy conscious individual jump in my electric car, the Volt. You see where the electricity is coming in here? I drive my car halfway to meet my brother. 
Now we've got the car packed up with all kinds of stuff for my kids, their electronics devices, their snacks, their pillows, their clothes, their games. Everything is just loaded into my car. When we get halfway, my brother in his electric car, because he's an energy conscious guy as well, pulls up and we both pop the trunks open. We transfer everything that's in my car to his car, including the kids, and he takes that message or those passengers on down to spend some time with the, the cousins. Simple idea, right? The only problem with this is we're not very tidy about how we do this. Uh, my kids leave uh, a, a wrapper from a hoagie, maybe a bag from some from fruit they were eating. Maybe somebody leaves a Starbucks cup by the side of the road there where we decide to meet. Uh, and generally, we're just not quite as neat and tidy as we probably should be. That's not such a big deal. But then when he brings them back the, over the weekend, we re repeat the process and we leave a little bit more trash. Every weekend, we get the cousins together and every weekend, we leave a little bit more trash and a little bit more trash. You see where I'm going with this? Over time, we're going to get an accumulation of trash where we exchange our passengers or our messages. That's the same thing that happens in the brain. We are not going to be able to maneuver to transfer the kids at some point in time because we've left so much trash laying by the side of the road. Let's move that up into the brain. The glymphatic or glia and lymphatic system is the proposed cleanup system of our brains. The microglia cells clean up the trash and then it's not really a true lymphatic system, but it's proposed to be something like a lymphatic system. It flushes it out. When the brain sends those messages, electricity goes down there, sends, hits the end, hits those chemicals, there are some leftover byproducts. Not all of the chemicals that are released are grabbed onto by the nerve number two, the receiving nerve. There's some leftovers. Some of the people want to call that sludge. That's a good word. The technical people want to call it interstitial solutes. So let's just use sludge because if I keep saying interstitial solutes, I'm probably going to stumble over that a million and one times. This sludge that's in there is cleared away in part through the ex exchange of brain interstitial fluid. Interstitial fluid means between the cells. The interstitial fluid and the brain's cerebrospinal fluid along with a brain-wide network of perivascular pathways. Peri meaning sort of beside or not quite true vascular pathways. And that is what they've recently decided to call the glymphatic system. Sounds pretty high tech, and it is. We're talking about really small stuff. We're talking about areas of the body that are really hard to get a good look at, but they're trying to do the studies now to really take a look at it. This sludge is cleared out by that circulation. That's the perivascular. Vascular has to do with circulation. So glymphatic function is primarily a feature of the sleeping brain. And that's where all this comes around. The waking brain really does not perform the glymphatic functions. It's slowed, this, this uh, glymphatic function is slowed in aging brains and also brains that have suffered some kind of a trauma. Sleep is what we need to clear this sludge out. The chemicals, the leftover stuff in between the two nerves that have been used to, to send messages. So if we're not getting good sleep, or if we're not getting quality sleep or long enough sleep, or we've had damage to the brain, or we're just getting older, that sludge begins to build up. This proposed system is an explanation of how Alzheimer's disease could possibly occur in our brains.
Now, before we all jump onto this bandwagon and say, hey, we found the cause and therefore the cure for, all, for Alzheimer's, let's pause. That's not what anybody's saying. This is just the proposed mechanism, and Alzheimer's is a proposed disease process that could result from that. This is going to require a lot more research and probably quite a few revisions before it becomes accepted as the cause for anything, let alone the treatment for anything. That's the way these things work. Then after they figure that out, there will come some sort of a new treatment based on this new plan. There will be the ideas that we might be able to create chemicals that we can somehow get across the blood-brain barrier to keep those microglial cells working and taking out the trash, and maybe they can do some of that job for them. This is at least 10 years down the road if everything goes as close to perfectly as they can possibly imagine. But it is probably one of the most exciting things that we have to look forward to when it comes to Alzheimer's research and potentially treatment. That is really some great news. It gets me excited as well. The first time I heard this, I couldn't believe it, so I went out and I started doing some research on it. There are some folks who are saying that this perivascular system really doesn't work like that, that the glialymph system doesn't really work like that, that there's other ways that the body clears that out, and this is not really a viable pathway, and it's not something that's going to hold up to the light of scrutiny. Uh, time will tell and they're gonna do the research on that. I wanted to let you know that as far as sleep goes, uh, this is an important thing. If we're not getting good quality sleep, years down the road, as we age, years and years and years of that bad sleep could be allowing that sludge to build up, and that could be a possible mechanism for why people end up with some of the memory problems and even Alzheimer's. Let's uh, put that thought on a very, very back burner, but it's something to keep in mind and, and keep looking back to as they're doing additional research. There's a couple other things that I want to talk about when it comes to the brain and the chemicals that are involved in the role of the sleeping and waking cycle. I want to spend just a couple minutes here talking about some chemicals that maybe you've heard of, maybe not. Serotonin, melatonin, adenosine, and GABA, G-A-B-A. Let me start first with this one called adenosine. This is a chemical that is released by our body and it builds up in our system all throughout our waking hours. The job of adenosine, one of the jobs of adenosine, is to make us recognize that we've been awake. It, as it increases, it makes us start to feel drowsy. Once we get enough of this building up on our system because we've been awake for a long enough period of time, staying awake can be a real struggle. Most of us are pretty familiar with getting drowsy and needing to stay awake because we've got functions that we have to perform. We've come up with a solution, and most of you are pretty much aware of it. It's caffeine. Caffeine hits our brain, and it prevents the adenosine from latching onto the place in the brain where it would be telling our brain, hey, I am tired. Caffeine prevents that process from continuing and prevents us from feeling drowsy. It gets rid of the drowsy feeling, but remember now, the drowsiness was a result of being awake for a longer period of time. Our brain eventually eliminates the adenosine as we sleep, and that is another good reason why we need sleep. We wake up from our sleep feeling rested, at least in part because our brain has been able to clear out and get rid of that adenosine as we prepare to start a brand new day. Now, that's one of the chemicals that kind of starts outside the brain and makes its way inside the brain. We have some stuff that, that are inside the brain. And I want to talk about this very specifically as inside the brain. There's a, an amino acid called tryptophan. That amino acid gets converted to a chemical called serotonin, which we've probably heard an awful lot about. And serotonin can then be converted to melatonin, 
Now, the conversion of serotonin to melatonin takes place in a small gland inside a brain called the pineal gland, P-I-N-E-A-L. It's pretty well known that the role of melatonin is to regulate our wake and sleep cycles. It helps restore and reestablish our normal circadian rhythms if those have been disrupted for a variety of reasons, probably the most common of which is jet lag. This melatonin can also help us to enter into the sleep cycle. And there's some conflicting evidence about whether or not oral melatonin can really do the job and help us asleep. I mentioned that that in the beginning was all something that takes place inside the brain. Tryptophan is an amino acid and it's found in turkey. It's found in some other foods. So people have said, well, if you eat a lot of tryptophan or if you were take an oral supplement of these amino acids, won't that help us get to sleep? Well, some of these amino acids do not cross the blood-brain barrier very efficiently. Therefore, we're not gonna be making a whole lot of melatonin because we're not getting a lot of it in there. Those chemicals that start out inside the brain work really well to be converted into melatonin. Those that are outside at this point in time do not seem like they make their way in very well at all. Now, the last chemical that I want to talk about is this GABA. Now, GABA is the main inhibitory neurotransmitter of what we call the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. Inhibitory meaning it shuts things down. It makes things go slower or makes things stop. It's well established that activation of the GABA-A receptors in our brain makes us favor sleep. In an article in Neuroscience Magazine back in 2002, they were talking about GABA mechanisms in sleep. A guy named Gottamson said that. Several generations of sleep aids, medications, chemicals have been based on the chemical properties and the chemical likenesses of GABA. And uh, we know that we've given people those kinds of medications with very good results in getting people to sleep, shutting our brain down, shutting our brain, our spinal cord down so that we can get, enter into that sleep cycle instead of the waking cycle. There is some possibility that taking a GABA supplement might be helpful in getting enough more longer quality of uh, quantity of sleep, not necessarily quality, but but a longer quantity of sleep. There's some of the chemicals that are floating around inside our brain naturally. They're important ones. For GABA, we can take some medications, some of the sleep medications, and be effective at helping that. You need a, the uh, prescription from your medical doctor for that. We have some potential uh, things like melatonin that we might be able to get into the brain by taking some supplements. The jury's still out on that. Uh, and some of the other things, the adenosine, and we know how we can disrupt the effect of adenosine by drinking some caffeine and some of the other stimulants. I want to try to, to wrap all this up and boil it all down, okay? In the beginning, we, we all agreed that it was important to get a good quantity of sleep and good quality of sleep. Adults seem like the magic number is seven hours. With school-age kids, we're probably talking about more like eight to nine hours. The amount of sleep that infants and toddlers need is uh, as much as you possibly can get them to take for their own sake as well as for the sake of poor mother and father. I have two kids, they're grown, but I appreciate it when they slept. The older adult crowd, those older, over 65, seem to need less and less sleep, and they get less and less sleep, and their sleep at nighttime is often interrupted for a variety of reasons. We also talked about trying to get better sleep by being consistent with the bedtime. If we can approach our sleeping time in a calm manner, limit, decrease, eliminate the excitement. Uh, we don't want to be watching exciting movies, scary movies, things that, that get us cranked up before we go to bed. 
We want to try to limit limit the things that stimulate us. Things that are outside substances like stimulants, like caffeine and other chemicals along those lines. Large quantities of alcohol and large meals uh, can interfere with us trying to get to sleep more quickly. If we can make the bedroom a dark, quiet, but comfortable environment, if we use it for sleep and really only one other bed activity, we'll get better sleep. If we can cut down on the sources of light, they're going to be staring us in the face. Electronics, televisions, computers, tablets. Shut them off 30 minutes before bed and it'll be easier for us to get to sleep and get the sleep that we need. We know that getting good sleep helps to prevent several nasty chronic illnesses, uh, things like at the top of the list, type 2 diabetes. But heart attacks and coronary heart disease are higher in people that aren't getting enough sleep. Strokes, asthma, COPD, depression, all of those things are higher in people that are getting that lack of quality sleep time. Good sleep, remember, lets us be more alert, lets us be more focused. So as we're going through our tasks of our day, we can grasp new concepts, learn new things. Really important for students, really important for those of us who are trying to go to our work job, our jobs, and do them well, and we get new concepts, we need to be able to be focused enough to learn those things. Then we go to sleep that night and get a good night's sleep. Our brain consolidates that learning and stores it, and we can go back and reuse that information that we've learned over and over and over again. That's how we move ahead. That's how we want students to move ahead. We've talked an awful lot about sleep over these past three weeks. It's important, and we need to be deliberate about getting the amount that we need Don't pretend that you can pull an all-nighter and think that you're going to be functionally as good as you possibly should be. It's just not going to happen. If you continue doing that, if you continue making choices, staying up late at night, watching those exciting movies until all hours, and you deprive yourself of the sleep, you're going to start to suffer some of those things. And it doesn't take very long. We saw those changes that happened to people in even short periods of sleep deprivation. If we want to start becoming healthier, we want to limit our chronic illnesses, We certainly want to have our brain working at maximum efficiency. We want to be doing this for the long haul. We want to be able to learn new concepts like podcasts with lots of information so that we can take our steps down the road toward better health now.